seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I am thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 5 this morning. Last week, if you were with us, we jumped back into Colossians by uh, starting uh, with the beginning of chapter 3 and verse 1. We looked at the first four verses to really see what I called the foundation of the Christian life. That we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And that grace empowers us through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to live a new life in which our mindset as well as our actions are changed to live under the authority, to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ in this present age. Friend, if we have been raised with Christ, we will seek that which is above where Christ is. And all of this is done with trust and hope in the glorious return of Christ. And there will come a day where our faith will become sight, where we will see him, where he will rule and reign for all eternity. And we will live in his perfect kingdom where sin will be no more. But today in verse five, it begins really a more specific section as to what applying the tenets of verses one through four actually look like in your everyday life. When you go through entire books of the Bible at a time, you are unable to avoid the more difficult passages. This is not a difficult passage because it's unclear in what it teaches. Rather, this is a difficult passage because it is difficult to live with a mindset in which you are constantly fighting against sin. You are constantly seeking to put your sin to death. You are constantly seeking where your sin is so that you can further apply the repentance that is yours in Christ Jesus every day of your life for the rest of your life. Rather than living under the dominion of sin, the Christian lives a new life in that obedience where we seek to not just know the commands of Christ in our lives, we seek to actually live in obedience to those commands. And I will tell you, this requires a large scale change in your life, and it will set you apart from the world on a different path than unbelievers are going to be living in. And so when you live for Jesus Christ, it requires a moment by moment activity of continual submission to God above all else. And it is difficult so often where discipleship is concerned to aid people to have that type of vision for our lives. We would really be more comfortable if we could just make a decision once and it sticks. It doesn't work that way. Uh, Francis Schaeffer wrote an incredible book called True Spirituality. It's not one of his apologetics books. It's one where he actually writes about the Christian life. But in that book, he describes this moment by moment commitment where it requires so many moment-by-moment -moment decisions to stay faithful to Jesus Christ in any and all circumstances. I think Colossians chapter 3 may be one of the most challenging sections of Scripture because in it, all of us should be able to see the struggle that we have with sin on a daily basis. I believe that it should challenge us as well as comfort us, though, in the lifelong battle against sin that Jesus is going to call you to wage through your faith. What begins with the work of God to regenerate us, to give us the life of Christ, a completely monergistic work, one where he does all of the work, becomes a cooperative effort in your daily life. And I think that's a difficult transition for people to make. 
is that what brought you to faith in Jesus Christ is not what sustains you through faith in Jesus Christ. And some people have a tough time wrapping their mind around that. God does all the work to save you. You do nothing. That's why you don't get any credit. Saying you are a Christian is not a brag about you. It's a boast about God and the work that He has done. But the work of sanctification, the work of living out the Christian life, is a synergistic reality. It is one in which you cooperate with the power of the Spirit to make the decisions to live in obedience to God. Look in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Don't ignore verse 6. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. And just stop there for a moment. Number one this morning, putting sin to death means you can fight. Putting sin to death means you can fight it. Now, when he says the phrase, put to death, therefore what is earthly in you? It's a good translation, but I think that it could be better in the original language. In the New American Standard from 1995, I think it gives a little bit more of a faithful translation. It says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to, and then he gives the list. I think that's a better translation for what it actually means. Both are fine, but the New American Standard there makes a better application as to what I think Paul is really advocating for. What he's really saying is that in light of the death to sin that has been earned for you through the cross, the fight against sin is one that begins in the mind. That's why that word consider is very important. When it says put to death... It doesn't begin with what happens in the mind. But the battle against sin is really one that begins in the mind. We put sin to death by realizing the truth of what Jesus has earned us. It is different to live for Christ than not live for Christ. That's not complicated. It's difficult. How different is it? It's as different as death is to life. If you have the life of Christ, you will have life. We're dead to sin. We're alive to Christ because of the cross and resurrection. Therefore, because of that, we can put sin to death through repentance and obedience. You are no longer a slave to sin. That's a consideration you have to make. That's something that you have to believe. That's a mindset that you have to own because so many of you live as though you are still dead in your sin. So many of you live as though sin is still your master. You will say things like, well, nobody's perfect. Do you realize how defensive such a statement like that is? Yes, someone is perfect, Jesus Christ. So right on the basis, you're wrong. Jesus is perfect. But do you not understand that through his death on the cross and through his resurrection, he shares his perfect righteousness with you. And so 
When you live your life claiming faith in Jesus Christ and excusing your or someone else's disobedience to Christ, you are denying the very perfection that Christ shares with you. That's why you must consider the members of your earthly bodies as dead to sin and alive in Christ. This mindset is the same thing that the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 6 when he makes the statement. He says, do not offer the members of your body. When he says the members of your body, he's being specific. He's talking about your hands. He's talking about your feet. He's talking about every part of you. He says, don't offer the body to sin as though sin is your master. What does he say? He says, give the members of your body to Christ. He is your master. Never excuse sin in your life as though it is acceptable to God, because it is not. Sin is never acceptable to God. Therefore, the mindset of sin is not acceptable to God. I mean, think about this. This is an objective statement. No qualifications. In Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. That is good news if you're a Christian. But for some of you, you hear that, and all that you hear is, well, then that means I'm not allowed to find pleasure in the things that I like to find pleasure in. Do you know where that mindset comes from? Being dead in your sin. If you do not consider the life of Christ better than the life of sin, then I want to make something abundantly clear with you. No qualifications. You are not a Christian. You are not a Christian. You are dead in your sin. Your taskmaster is sin. You do not have the life of Christ. Now, some people will find such a statement as offensive because it's not inclusive enough. Who told you Christ was inclusive? Christ is completely exclusive. Apart from him, you have no hope. Apart from him, verse 6 is your story. The wrath of God is coming. And the only way out is through faith in Christ and Christ alone. The trouble is that some of us do consider, there's that word, sin to be better and more convenient than the life of Christ. Friend, it is not. That is a faith problem. Consider, though, again... How Scripture speaks of sin. Sin comes through deception that tempts you to pursue condemnation rather than eternal joy. Paul in this section will ultimately give us two lists in this passage. Now, these are not exhaustive lists. I think sometimes when we look at things like the fruits of the Spirit, we look at lists of sin and we consider all of them to be somehow exhaustive lists. So if our sin doesn't, isn't in the list, well, phew, then I don't have to deal with my sin. Now, that's not what the Apostle Paul is doing, nor is it what he's doing with the fruits of the Spirit or the spiritual gifts. Uh, what he's doing is he's giving a long list so that you will understand how exhaustive the, the list could be. And in this passage, in verse 5, he gives you a pretty healthy list. But understand the connection between all of them. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, the conclusion on both lists that he's going to give, and the lists are completely different. I'll explain that to you in a few moments. 
But the conclusion, the last thing he gives you is what ends up being exhaustive, which is idolatry. In other words, all of the sin in your life is ultimately you having a worship problem. It is you worshiping something as though it is better than God. And note where he begins. He begins where all cultures end up devolving, sexual immorality. Do you want to watch the end of a civilization? When sexual immorality begins to run rampant, that's when you're close to the end. And so in our society, sexual immorality, as in all past societies, is the ultimate vice that becomes a false religion. It becomes cultic in the way that you deal with it. And so the absolutes of our culture have to do with gender ideology, homosexuality, promiscuity, no-fault divorce, fornication being acceptable at any age. And that is, of course, the death of soul in society. When you accept that you are to be led around as though incapable of controlling your genitalia, then you are not serving Christ as your master. Nor are you helping anyone when you make excuses for them. The Apostle Paul, in verse 6, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, looks at this, and what does he say? On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Really not much more serious I could say. If you don't understand the severity of what that means, then you don't understand the wrath of God at all. The wrath of God is no mere smack of the hand. The wrath of God is no mere grounding. It is not just a simple, you have 25 to life and then we'll let you go. No, the wrath of God is eternal destruction. It's eternal torment. It's eternal pain. It's hell. And if we do not live as those who have been free from slavery, then that is the future. Here we deal with the deception that pleasure can be found apart from God rather than through obedience to God. And it can't. But I think some of you are determined to prove that it can. And that worries me for you. Enduring in faith demands then a fight. And so the question that I think is a really good question that you should have, if you've never posed this question, then, then you're probably not fighting. How do you fight? How does someone who has a static state of forgiven fight against sin with which the victory has already been won? So number one, why do I have to fight? But then number two, how do I fight? You have to fight because even though the victory has already been won, Christ has not translated you into heaven yet, has he? No, he has left you in a world that is under the curse of sin. And so you have to say, why has he done that? Well, he has done that so that the world can see your personal victory over sin through his eternal victory over sin. Look at Romans chapter 7. Paul deals with the struggle with sin in the Christian life. I do not believe Romans 7 is about your struggle before the Christian life because before the Christian life, you were not struggling at all. You were just dead. The Apostle Paul writes in verse 15, I do not understand my own actions. 
For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Have you ever caught yourself in sin? So why did I do that? What is wrong with me? Why would I choose sin? That's the deal that Paul is having in his life. Paul hates sin. Why? Because it robs God of his glory. But then skip down to Romans 7.22. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God in my mind, but in my flesh, or with my flesh rather, I serve the law of sin. And so what he's talking about is the struggle. He's talking about the fight. He's talking about the battle that's happening. There's a desire to obey God. Why? Because he knows that God is better. But there is still a struggle against sin. And so, how do you know if you're in that place versus dead to sin? Are you convicted of your sin or are you joyous about your sin? Do you desire to repent of sin or do you desire to be left alone with your vices? Look at the hope of verse 25. The battle against sin and the Christian life is not one by which you just white knuckle it through effort. It is one that has already been won and finished by Christ through his work on the cross and resurrection. So I don't fear condemnation for my sin. Rather, I have strength to fight it and put it to death. It's the age-old question, is there fight left in you or have you just given in? Have you just given in? Do you just accept your sinfulness? Do you just accept that you're going to be disobedient to God? That's not the Christian mindset. That's not the power of the Holy Spirit in you. So why then is the fight necessary? If the victory's already been won, and I've got a fight because the victory's already been won, well, if it's already been won, then why is there a fight? Look further down to Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will what? You will die. He's not talking about just a physical death. He's talking about the book of Revelation, this eschatological reality, the second death, the spiritual death, the condemnation in hell for eternity. And so what the Apostle Paul says is, I've got fight, so I won't live by the flesh. Because if I live by the flesh, then the victory is not mine. I will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, there's that is again, underline that, the deeds of the body, you will what? You will live. You will live. And so don't disconnect these realities in these verses. You have to get the whole message. You fight because the fight is actually the proof of your faith. If you don't fight and you just live by the flesh, that is proof of your death. But if you have the Spirit, you will fight. And here's the even better news. that Some of you don't believe, and I can't understand why you don't believe this. Romans 8.13 doesn't just say there will be fight. What does it say? It says there will be victory. It says you will put to death that which is earthly, the deeds of the body. Friends, I must put sin to death through the power that the Holy Spirit has gifted to me, but the only way I'm going to be able to do it is if I use the power 
that he's given to me. Verse 5 of Colossians chapter 3 calls your sin idolatry. Because why? In its essence, all sin is about worship. Obedience is an issue of worship. So when you choose disobedience, you are choosing to worship the self rather than worship God. And that is no small matter. Why? Because what verse 6 says, the wrath of God is coming. All of this is connected to what he says in the text. That is why the Puritans, these great theologians in church history, took sin so seriously. That's why when you see people call someone puritanical and, and it's, it's meant to be an insult, I say thank you. I appreciate the compliment. The same thing somebody calls me a fundamentalist, as though that's a bad thing. I've been a fundamentalist as long as I've been alive. I love it. I've always put the fun back into fundamentalism. <laughs> it's been a great life. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Jesus was quite the fundamentalist too. But sin is serious. And John Owen, the great Puritan, wrote these great words in the mortification of sin. He says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Truer words have never been written. Some of you accept sinful patterns in your life, and there's a problem for two reasons. First, you are robbing yourself of the joy given you by Christ if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you accept sin. You're accepting a less than life. You're accepting a joyless life. Joy is found in obedience to God. Joy is never going to be found in disobedience, but there's a second problem there. And that is that you are risking your very soul because your sinful patterns may ultimately reveal that you were never truly a Christian. You never truly believed the gospel. Jesus used the harshest of words in dealing with the battle against sin. Look at what Jesus Christ says in Matthew 18, 8, when he describes how you should fight. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It doesn't get much more severe than that. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and to be thrown in the eternal fire. You want to know why Jesus says that? Yes, he's using hyperbole. So if any of you go home and willfully become an amputee today, it's not on me. That's on you. All right. You don't understand how literary devices work. This is hyperbole. But it's not an exaggeration of the point. And I think that's where people go wrong. Jesus is not exaggerating the point. He's exaggerating the method. The point is true. What good will your hands and feet do you if you are burning in hell for all eternity? None. That's why he can make a statement. It's better to be lame than to be thrown into the hell of fire. And Jesus is saying, this is the level at which you must understand the fight because the wrath of God is coming. I quoted John Owen, be killing sinner. Sin will be killing you. Another Puritan, Richard Baxter, wrote about it this way. He said, sin is your murderer and the murderer of the world. Use it, therefore, as a murderer should be used. Kill it before it kills you. Think about how serious he's saying the fight against sin is. He's saying the sinful fight is serious because sin is trying to kill you and everyone around you. And you don't negotiate with a murderer. You end him. 
Stop negotiating your obedience with God and simply kill sin. Don't believe the lie that it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. Don't believe the lie that your situation is different and your struggle with sin is different than everyone else's. Don't believe the lie that it will be okay. Put it to death. Fight. Because number two, admitting there is a sin to fight is both a challenge and a comfort. Admitting there is a sin to fight is both a challenge and a comfort. Friend, denying your sin doesn't do you or anyone else any good. And so your lies are not actually helping anyone. The challenge of a passage like this is that we are all very good at finding other people's sins. We're like, well, yep, sexual immorality, yep, passions, yep, covetousness, yep, idolatry. I know five people that need to be here right now hearing this sermon. We're good at that, aren't we? I know you guys are. But start with you. You have a problem with sin. Every one of us needs to look at both of the lists in Colossians chapter 3 here and find your own struggle with specific sins. There are so many people that will call themselves sinners. And if you ask them, well, what sins are you struggling to repent of right now? Well, uh, mm, mm, I sped. That's how I know you're not an honest person because you're not even being honest with yourself. Look in verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The first step of faith is admitting you have sin you need to be saved from, right? Therefore, none of us is getting out of this text without sin to deal with. Every one of us has sins we must put to death in our lives because this is a lifelong battle. Note the, the difference between the two lists. The first list begins with pleasure. The second left, uh, list rather, deals with anger. It deals with that fury that boils up within you. And I don't know a single person that doesn't struggle with sin on both lists in some way. Again, remember, this isn't an exhaustive list. You're dealing with this in your heart. You know that you are. You're finding joy in the wrong places, and you're angry for all the wrong reasons. The battle will continue in your life with all of these things until glory. But some of you are so worried about other people's sins that you refuse to internalize any of this as your own struggle. Own this so that you can fight this. People make requests of sermons all the time. People make requests of me to do special teachings on all sorts of issues that other people are struggling with. 
Rare is the person who comes to me and says, I'm struggling with this specific issue. Please teach about this specific issue. You want to know why? Because you're lying to yourself every single day of your life and you believe you are better and more obedient than everyone else down the road. It changes your life when you live like the Apostle Paul and you admit, I am the chief of sinners. Step one of helping others is to repent of your own sin. Then you can really be judgmental. (laughs) This should challenge you. If you cannot state what you are struggling with, then you are not battling. In verse 8, Paul offers what can be seen as almost a stepladder of sin. I love the way that it progresses in verse 8. He uses this elsewhere to describe what it looks like to grow in faith in in the book of Romans. But this stepladder of anger shows how it is ultimately destructive to you as well as others. Now, again, in the ESV, I love the ESV, but there are particular passages where it is not the best translation, and it doesn't do the best here because there's one that sticks out like a sore thumb and it's the phrase obscene talk. It doesn't seem to fit with slander. And then if it's a stepladder, how do we just get to dirty jokes? Because that's not a good translation. The NASB 95, again, I believe is superior in this specific passage, not everywhere, but here it is. When it translated, translates it as abusive speech. And then it gets to the heart of the matter. It is intending to point out vulgarity, but of a specific nature. What he's doing here is he's dealing with that anger that begins to boil up within you to the point where you have real malice, to the point where you have real wrath, to the point that you're going to other people and you're like, who does he think he is? It becomes slander. And then one day that guy or that woman does something and you just unleash holy terror on their lives and you rip them down one side You rip them up the other side and you abuse them verbally in vulgar ways because your anger has come to fruition. Now, keep in mind, he's not talking about righteous anger here. There are plenty of people that we should righteously mock in culture. What he's talking about is an anger that you have because you believe you are God. How dare they overstep God? me. And it's destructive to you. It's destructive to the community. It's destructive to other people. And it is not the path of Christ. The intention here in these verses is not to deal with sexual sin or sin of anger solely. But he uses these two, number one, because they are universal, but number two, because they both show the effect of all sin. It leads to first idolatry and it leads to second, destroying everybody that stands in your path. And then what do you found in disobedience to the great commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul and mind idolatry. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, destroying everyone in your path. You see, friends, it is all connected in your life. But the first step to repentance, to getting right, 
is admitting that you personally have a sin to fight. God disciplines his followers as a father. I do want to tell you about that. Verse 6 talks about the wrath of God, but when you as a Christian find sin in your life, is there wrath for you? And I think that's a common um, confusion. Look in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, it informs us that part of the fight against sin does include discipline. He says, the author of Hebrews, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Do you have any kids at home? What do you do when they disobey you? You discipline them, I hope. Even though every Sunday I look in the field. And I see some I've got questions about. <laughs> Just being honest. But you discipline them. If you're a loving parent, you don't discipline them out of wrath. You discipline them to correct them. You discipline them because you do not want them walking out into the world as a complete disaster. You want them to know how to live in society. You want them to know how God the Father loves them. So you don't discipline them because of your great wrath against them. There's a difference. A good and loving father, a good and loving mother sets boundaries around their child. And when that child oversteps those boundaries, you lovingly correct them in, yes, ways that hurt if you don't, I'll tell you right now, it's because you don't love your child. And you just want to allow them to walk into the world thinking they are God. But God the Father treats you exactly the same if you are his child. It begins, his discipline begins with guilt of conviction for sin. When you sin, do you know Shouldn't have done that. I need to never do that again. I need to turn to the grace of Jesus Christ. That's discipline. Sin should make you miserable. If it doesn't, you got a faith problem. But it's not limited to that. God can discipline you in whatever way will get your attention. Yes, he will use sickness to discipline you. Yes, he will use personal calamity to discipline you. And on and on. If you are his child, expect discipline. Now here's the deal. If he removes his hand and allows you to just sin unchecked, then maybe he's not your father. If God doesn't need to correct you, then that's God punishing you. Saying, my love's not on your life, so I'm not going to discipline you. You're free to love your sin. Then he goes and he makes the statement after abusive speech. And he says, do not lie to one another. Now that's interesting. That it would follow this. And that is a gripping command. The direct application of that first, in light of the context, would be denying you have sin. So don't lie to one another. You are a sinner. But some of you hide it so well. But you are never hiding it from God. But second, 
Also don't miss that I don't think do not lie to one another is disconnected from what he taught earlier in the book. Remember, what did he deal with earlier in the book? False teachers, false doctrine. What he's talking about here is saying that buying into the deception of sin will lead you to deceiving others about your sin, which will ultimately then lead you to deceiving others with false doctrine about sin. It's a slippery slope once you buy into the lies of the enemy about sin. Therefore, the only path forward for all of us is to be honest and specific about our sins with ourselves as well as with God. Romans 8.23 tells us that the curse of sin is something that the world itself groans against. Note what he says. He says, not only the creation groans, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We see the effects of sin all around us, as Paul's pointing in that passage. Conviction for sin, the fight against sin, though, goes from challenge to comfort when you think about that. What he's saying is, If you're a follower of Christ, there is coming a day when you won't have to fight against sin anymore because it won't exist. We are the first fruits. Yes, we groan inwardly because we fight against sin with the hope of a new sinless reality in the kingdom of heaven. And how do we do that? By obeying the call of God in verse 10. Put on the new self. We put off the old in the fight against sin and we obey the power God has given us as he has overcome the power of sin for us. Do you believe that? Have you applied that reality to your life? Some of you are so consumed by the challenge of fighting against sin that you have forgotten or you have neglected the comfort of what the fight means about the future. There is coming a day where the fight will end. Are you tired of fighting sin? Of course. But I pray that it's because you are tired of sin. And it's not that you are tired of Christ. See, the hope is that Christ has overcome sin. And verse 11 then is the ultimate comfort. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Number three, all Christians can have an equal share of Christ. Your fight to put sin to death dictates your experience of Christ. The truth of your faith, yes, is going to be seen in the fight for your life. Some of you consider your struggles and you decide that because you struggle with this or you struggle with that, you must live as a second class Christian. That's foolishness. And the ultimate reason for your foolishness is not because you have less of Christ. It is because you can't get over yourself. Note what he says. Christ is all in all. That is an equalizing statement. This is not about you and your strength. It is about the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is unleashed in you through faith in Jesus. Verse 11 is often quoted separately from the context in which it is actually in, like so many verses. You solely use it to talk about the equality across races. Well, you're missing the entire point there. 
What he's saying is no one has more ability to fight against sin than anyone else does in Christ. We set our minds on the things above and are renewed as we grow in knowledge. Through this, we realize more and more of what we have and more and more of what we are in Christ. And then the spiritual reality meets the physical reality of the way that we live every single day. Friends, this is about growth in our experience of Christ in our lives. Verse 11 comes in that, as a reassurance of who we are in Christ so we can be comforted in the fight. He says, are you a Jew? Well, if you're in Christ, then you have fight. Are you a Gentile? Are you a Greek? Well, in Christ, you have fight. Are you a slave? Are you free? Christ is all in all. Stop separating yourselves out by ethnicity, by income, by place in life. It's about Christ. Oh, you weren't born to a Christian family? You still have as much Christ if you believe Him as someone who was born into a Christian family. Oh, you didn't have the foot up that you feel everybody else had the foot up on? Oh, you struggle with sin because of trauma in your past that other people don't struggle with? So what? Christ is all in all. Stop feeling sorry for yourself as though it excuses your lack of trust in Jesus Christ. This is about the growth of your experience with Christ in your daily life. You simply need to live out the reality of what is yours in Christ. None of us earned it was given to all of us through his work and his work alone. None of you have more access to Christ than another one of you through faith. I used very purposefully two words in this phrase, and those words are can have. And I don't want you to miss why I used those two words, because it's not about the cosmological reality of what you do have in Christ. It is about the physical reality of what you are currently experiencing in Christ. Because some of you are living as though you can't have as much Jesus as everybody else has. How belittling of Christ is that? In verse 10, he says that you have put on. In the original language, that's in the aorist tense, which means it's in the past tense. It means it's already happened. It means that you live this life as though you have already put on. And how can you live like that? I can tell you how you can live like that. Because you know in your faith that the work has already been done. And Christ accomplished it on the cross. Therefore, I have put on Christ. You can feel sorry for yourself or you can live by faith. Do you have parents that didn't disciple you very well? All right. Did you have parents that did disciple you really well? All right. Did you go to a Christian school? All right. Did you go to a public school? All right. Did you go to a Christian college? Good for you. Me too. Did you go to a public university? All right. When you're dealing with the status of your faith in Jesus Christ, stop asking those types of questions and ask one question. Am I in Christ? Christ. 
That's the great equalizer of the Christian faith. And if the answer to am I in Christ is yes, then I have as much of Jesus Christ as every other Christian throughout the entire history of the church. Do you know Billy Graham didn't have more access to Jesus than I have or you have? Do you know Martin Luther didn't? John Calvin didn't? Charles Wesley, his brother John Wesley didn't? George Whitfield? None of them. Charles Spurgeon? Same Christ. Christ is all in all. So live that reality out. Again, the NASB 95. I know I don't normally do this, but it's just in this specific passage. The NASB 95 begins verse 11 with a renewal in which there is no distinction. What a beautiful way to put it. If you have Christ, live as a Christian. Not because of anything physical, but because of what He has earned for you on the cross and through the resurrection. A few application points this morning. First, consider your sin dead through faith in Jesus. It's dead. I have no excuses. My sin is dead. Secondly, fight to continuously identify and kill sin. Do it all the time. As soon as I find great victory through repentance in one area, it's like Romans 7. I find that the man of sin is still close at hand somewhere else. And that's a challenge. But the comfort is that I can fight. And I must continue to fight. Number three, admit your sin specifically. I've personally found that my prayer, God, forgive me of my sin through Christ, is not practically helpful. <laughs> what is helpful is, Holy Spirit, examine me. Show me my sin. And then I confess it specifically, directly, so that I can pray for strength in any and all of those areas. Fourthly, this is a big one. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. We've all got baggage. We've all got chips on our shoulders. We've all got something. But we've all got the gospel of Jesus Christ through faith. I am more than a conqueror in Christ. Finally, start trusting that Christ is enough. Stop defining yourself by your background. Stop defining yourself by your struggle. Stop defining yourself by what you do have. Stop defining yourself by what you don't have. Define yourself by the cross, by the resurrection. Christ is all in all. 